everyone, welcome to Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Advani, here with my co-host, finance expert and author, and my husband, Ruben Advani. Hey, Ruben. Hi, Emily. So here on Wall Street to Main Street, we break down complex financial news and topics for our Main Street listeners. I'm going to start out with the volatility in the market and just really the economy in general lately. Can you give us some insight on how to steer these choppy waters? Well, I will certainly do my best. I wish I had all the answers. Wait, you don't? I Well, only at home when it comes to professional matters. I'm not sure, but I'll do my best. I, I've seen this type of thing before. We've certainly been in the midst of other types of choppy waters in the past, and we've gotten through it, both on Main Street as well as on Wall Street. So let's let's start with with what we should be doing from an investor standpoint. Many of our listeners are investors, some more active than others. And this is a time of, um, of concern, to say the least, and perhaps for others, even a time of great fear. So what should investors be doing in the midst of the, this significant volatility? Well, amongst other things, one should not lose sight of long-term goals. Markets are inherently choppy from time to time, but what we've learned about specifically the stock market is in in the long run, the stock market continues to rise. So if you have a thesis, if you have an investment plan, stay the course. This is not the time to engage in significant portfolio reallocation. That being said, it is very important to be diversified because while some particular sectors of the economy are suffering more than others, it's fair to say that uh, in times of tumult, some can thrive. I'll give you an example. So right now we're seeing across the board declines in technology, declines in retail, declines in manufacturing, but we're actually seeing some bright spot in commodities and utilities. So those are areas that one might focus on. So to the extent that someone is looking to deploy new capital, perhaps you focus some of that capital on the safe haven stocks in things like utilities and things like perhaps um, commodities. And I I hesitate because commodities is a very broad, all-encompassing term. Commodities could even include oil, which hasn't been doing very well recently. So be judicious and be smart about it. And remember, stay diversified and stay focused on the long run. And when you say diversified, does the diversity of your portfolio really depend on your specific situation and your goals, what does diversity really mean? So diversity can mean different things to different people. On the the one hand, one should be diversified across asset classes, and that's largely driven by where you are in life. Someone who's nearing retirement should be diversified between equities and fixed income securities. In other words, they should have some stocks and some bonds in their portfolio because they can't afford to take on as much risk. If you're 70 years old and you're at the uh, sort of end of your career and you're looking to retire to Florida, well, you can't 
stomach the kinds of ups and downs that sometimes occur in the stock market. So for someone in that position, they need to rely on steady income, and that's where fixed income, specifically bond-type instruments, come into play. But if you're 25 years old at the start of your career, well, you can weather these storms, and more of your portfolio should be allocated towards stocks. And I'll also add then, you should be diversified across not just asset classes, but within asset classes, you should be diversified on specific assets. So if you're buying stocks, you should be diversified across sectors. As I mentioned earlier, you should have some in safer sectors like utilities, some in more volatile ones like technology, and so on and so forth. What happens when you turn on your TV or you check your phone and the stock market is down 750 points? Do you hit the panic button? Because it feels really scary. I think you hit the liquor cabinet first and foremost. Well, I do that no matter what the stock market's doing. (laughs) Right. And then you take a deep breath and you remember that playing the stock market can be a vicious game, but no one has ever made money panicking. So you keep a cool head and you recognize the vagaries of the financial market and you do your best to maneuver them. So you stay calm, stay collected, and stay smart. I wish I could give you more specific instructions, but the reality is panicking will not serve you well. And being down 750 points during a certain point in the day and then closing not so off from, you know, healthy, normal numbers, how do we measure this volatility? Is there a way that it's measured? Well, in the financial world, there's something called beta. And beta is a measurement of volatility. The best way to describe it is by giving you an example. So the market, the overall stock market, is, has con- is considered to have a beta of 1.0. So if a stock has a beta, an individual stock has a beta of 1.0, it trades in tandem with the market. In other words, if the stock market goes up by 1%, the stock itself would go up by 1%. If the stock market goes down by 1%, the individual stock would go down by 1%. Now, let's consider an example of a company with a beta of 1.5. If the stock market goes up 1%, the stock itself would go up 1.5%. So it magnifies the movements in the stock market. And similarly, if the stock market went down 1%, this stock would go down 1.5%. So that would be considered a high beta stock, one that exaggerates the movements of the overall market. And examples of high beta stocks are ones that tend to be risky, companies that might be seen as more speculative. In general, technology companies tend to have higher betas than, say, utility companies. Utility companies tend to be lower beta because they're very stable. And with that volatility comes risk, and with risk comes return. So people looking to take on more risk will usually take on higher beta stocks so they can make more money on the upside. But at the same time, they lose more money on the downside. So is beta something that us on Main Street, we should look at? I think it's worth considering. You can usually find the beta for any given stock on any major financial website. So I think it's worth considering. We also mentioned volatility in the overall economy. So for us regular consumers, 
what should we consider that's outside the realm of our stock picks? Well, I think it, it goes without saying that smart consumers tend to be smart savers. I'm not saying crawl under a rock and hoard all your pennies, but what I am saying is be smart about how you allocate your resources. In general, it's a good idea to uh, save a little bit each month. Don't spend your entire paycheck. I think that goes without saying. And there are wonderful metrics in terms of how much you should be budgeting and how much you should be saving each month. You can go online and find all of that information on any personal finance website. And there are people far smarter than me that offer those tips. But I think in general, make sure that you are saving an adequate amount and having reasonable resources in the event of a job loss, because that's one of the biggest concerns around economic volatility is the fact that if it turns worse, a country, a, a country slips into recession, well, next thing you know, job losses will follow. So make sure you have sufficient funds to cover an extended period of unemployment. At the same time, don't lose sight of your future. I'm a big believer that you should always, when given the opportunity, max out on your retirement accounts, especially if your company matches your contribution, because that, in effect, is free money. Retirement accounts take on many forms, but the, the, the one of the more popular ones is the 401k. The beauty of this is that you're allocating pre-tax dollars. So that's money right out of your paycheck before you pay taxes. So that money grows over time on your pre-tax dollars. It can compound over the course of an entire career. And again, if you go online, you can see some wonderful statistics depending on how old you are and how much you contribute. It will tell you how much you'll have at the time of retirement. So by all means, do your best to max out on your retirement accounts. And finally, the most important thing is um, don't stop investing in yourself. Always look for ways to bolster your personal skills. Take an online class, attend a seminar, buy some books, do whatever you can because, again, if the economy tumbles into recession, things just become more competitive in the job world. And having new skills, fresh skills, skills that are in demand can only help you. So those are just a few quick pointers I would offer. Uh, again, it's not time to hit the panic button, and you really can't go wrong if you follow these measures. So we're going to sort of switch gears here, Ruben. But if you invest correctly, whether it's in the stock market, perhaps in yourself, and maybe even in your 401k, maybe you could be a participant in the luxury goods market. Now, this is a market that I personally find fascinating. Although I don't necessarily participate yet, I do love to watch high-end brands and look at the ads on Instagram. When I get my Saks Fifth Avenue uh, swiping ad on Instagram, I always click to see what's going on. I never put anything in my cart. But apparently there are a lot of other people putting these high-priced, high-end items in their cart. It seems a little counterintuitive with what we were just talking about. Volatility, the stock market being up and down, up and down. But the luxury market, not so bad, huh? Not so bad at all. It seems to hold up reasonably well. It takes something very dire and very extreme to disrupt the luxury market. And that's because it draws from a pool of global buyers that um, are really kind of in a, in a realm where 
uh, one would argue they're immune to major economic disruptions, especially in the higher end of the market. You're talking about people that are extremely diversified so that even when uh, disruptions occur in the economy, these are, are folks that can still afford to buy their MyBox or their Rolexes. So I think it's, it's a fascinating segment. It takes quite a bit to disrupt this space. In fact, in 2018, which is a, a good year across most segments of the global economy for the most part, with, with the exception of some of the bumps towards the end of the year, the market grew globally to around a trillion dollars. That encompasses both products and luxury products and luxury experiences. But it's a, a remarkable number. That was a 5% increase over the prior year. Can you give us an idea? I mean, 5%. Is that a, a decent bump for a sector? 5% in, in a sector is considered a decent bump, yes. Are there thoughts on what could be driving the growth in the luxury market? Sure. Well, without a doubt, the Chinese consumer continues to spend on luxury goods, and with the Chinese market continuing to expand, uh, the long-term trend is that this will continue to expand the overall luxury market. So that's, that's, a, that's a big component. Uh, at the same time, more and more consumers are shopping online. That creates a much more efficient and much more accessible market. In other words, think about even your own situation or friends who buy luxury goods. It used to be that you needed to live near Saks Fifth Avenue or Neiman Marcus and spend a day shopping there. Well, now if you see something you like, just go online and you buy it. And you have complete flexibility. If you don't like it, you send it back. And there are many, many outlets from which you can do that. You don't have to just go to the department stores. You can go on to Amazon. You can go on to countless others and find exactly what you're looking for. And most of all, you can find it at a relatively competitive price. Because with more, more places to buy, Prices tend to be um, more consumer-friendly. Another factor driving it, the advent of the influencer. I was about to say, not only can do you have access to all the things that you're looking for, like you said, you don't have to go to Neiman's or Saks to get what you want, but when you see someone else with it, whether that is an influencer on a small scale, maybe the ladies you lunch with, or influencers on a large scale, it's really easy to access that. You know where it's coming from. They advertise where it's coming from. And boom, you see um, one of the Kardashians with the new Gucci belt and boom, you can find it and have it. I was afraid you were going to say that, but yes, that is a good example. It really caters to one of the most base human characteristics, which is the need for instant gratification. So when Chloe's wearing that new Gucci belt, within minutes you'll have it ordered, and within a day it will be delivered to your front doorstep. Well, and I have a really good example, and this actually wasn't total luxury market. This is probably on the lower end, but Kate Middleton wore these pair of Aldo pumps to Wimbledon. My mom screenshotted them to me because I was looking for a pair of shoes, and I went, and it was mentioned that they're from Aldo. I went on Aldo, found them, ordered them, and got them delivered. So what you're saying is my mother-in-law is an influencer, and you are single-handedly 
along with her, driving the growth in the luxury goods market. There you have it. Folks. Okay, I think Kate is the influencer, and my mom is just really into what Kate's wearing. Okay, but within minutes, I could have it, and it was a good thing because the shoe, it would when she wears something and people find out where it's from, it sells out quickly, because everyone else is doing the very same thing that I did. Absolutely, that's that's a big big factor in how market dynamics have shifted in a manner that's favorable, both to the luxury producer as well as to the luxury consumer. One last thing I'll point out, and this has not been widely documented in the economic reports, but I imagine it will surface in the coming years. The arrival of the secondary market, or really the growth, expansive growth of the secondary market. There are numerous websites now where you can buy and sell used luxury items. The great thing about this is that now when people look at that new Rolex watch or that Hermes tie, they're no longer thinking of it exclusively as an indulgence. They're actually thinking of it as an asset purchase, one that will, to a large degree, hold its value. Looking at some of these sites, people buy Hermes scarves or ties, and they can turn around and resell them for probably 80 cents on the dollar. Not so bad. You buy a tie, you wear it a few times, or you wear it for a year, you sell it. What you've really effectively done is rented that tie. You've paid 20% of that purchase price to use it for a year because you can turn around and sell it to someone else. Even better, jewelry. Most of the time, you can buy jewelry and sell it, sometimes in the case of watches, at its retail price. So this has actually fueled a lot of interest amongst a core set of buyers that previously were not interested uh, in fact, somebody uh, I worked with not too long ago was a buyer and seller of uh, a specific brand of very high-end sneakers. And he said some of these were limited editions such that you could buy them, turn around and sell them at a higher price. So it fueled the growth of that particular brand and really that segment of the luxury market. That's going to be something interesting to watch as these platforms are becoming more relevant. Precisely. Like we were saying... One of the big drivers of this luxury market is really Hollywood, celebrities, influencers, and that's really all kind of part of this Hollywood celebrity scene. Another really interesting area of investment, which is kind of unconventional, is film. I'd love to hear your take on some of the recent developments in film investing. Well, I have a number of friends in the film business, uh, mostly on the business and production side, and it's really it's fascinating to sit down with them and discuss what's changed over the years. In fact, some of these are folks are, are essentially lifelong friends that have been in the industry now for decades, and it's it's really great to hear what they're thinking about now versus what they may have thought of 20 years ago. For example. Film today is, is notably different than it was 20 years ago, not just in terms of content and how that content is matched with demographics. That is now largely a, a, a product of, of data science. For example, Netflix is producing films based on viewer trends. They can look at what people are watching on their site. They can track their, their movements when they're pausing, when they're fast forwarding, and they can get a read on what people like and what they don't don't like. And from there, they can craft their next production. So number one, data is driving the finished product. So it's taking a very technical approach 
to, uh, to meet consumer demands. Number two, from the financial perspective, films in the past were produced with the overriding goal of box office receipts. The Wall Street uh, bean counters would work with the Hollywood creative types and figure out how big is this film going to be and how many people will go to the theater to watch it and essentially work off of standard valuation methodologies to determine what that film is worth. Well, that changed form with the uh, arrival of home video, and most recently, it's now focused uh, not so much on the box office, not so much on the, uh, the home recorded version, not that many people watch DVDs anymore. It's really focused on digital distribution rights, which platforms will stream the finished product and when and for how long. And that's really the primary driver behind the economics of film uh, and even to some degree t uh, television as well. That being said, what is the most valuable film of all time? Is it a today film based on this new financial model or is it something that was based off the former financial model? It's a difficult question to answer because it's really going to be based on the outlook for a film. It could e easily be a film that was made many years ago. And the question is, what, um, what is someone willing to pay for that film today? So that will largely be driven by projections. And those projections, of course, will be largely based on the new model for film, which is, is to a significant degree based on streaming. But an easier question to answer would be, what's the highest grossing film of all time? Care to take a guess? Um, Titanic. Titanic is certainly up there, but inflation adjusted in today's dollars, the highest grossing film, according to CNN Entertainment, is Gone with the Wind. It was made oh. in 1939. It grossed $200 million before accounting for inflation. But after inflation, it's uh, closer to $2 billion. $2 billion mm -hmm. With a B. That's right. Inflation adjusted from $20 million? From $200 million. Oh, $200 yeah. million. So since 1939, that's what it's, what it's made. And when you adjust it into today's dollars, you're looking at something closer to $2 billion. Now, <clears throat> Avengers Endgame is around that mark in today's dollars, so it's quite possible that that will soon become the highest grossing film of all time. Remains to be seen. And these numbers are based on continued revenue. Exactly. So Gone with the Wind streams. Gone with the Wind is something people buy on DVD. It's a perennial classic. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, I'm going to follow up on this in a later podcast to see where we stand. Sounds good. Well, you've given us a lot to think about on another podcast of Wall Street to Main Street. Thank you for sharing your insights, and we look forward to next time. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks, Emily. Ooh, ooh. Well,